It's One American Podcast live with Spencer Clavin. How are you, sir? Jason, great, man. It's good to see you. How you doing? I'm doing well, too, man. I love how whenever we go live, we have to act like we haven't been hanging out for five minutes. So it's like, <laughs> oh, good to see you. What are I you have never, this is brand new information. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny. And then afterwards, you're like, off mic, we were talking because we have like, we're friends. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> this is right. elaborate artifice. Solid tissue of lies. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's the story of the West, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. That's that's a good tagline. An elaborate tissue of lies by Spencer and I think that's yeah. Probably, Sounds yeah. like Nathaniel Hawthorne. The West is a lie that tells the truth. <laughs> Ooh, I like that. Right? That's what he said about <laughs> fiction. I don't yeah. know. All I, all I read was the quote in the beginning. I didn't read the book. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. That's all you need. Um, that is kind of the like one of the big points in the book. Actually, I should have put that as an epigraph. We should have had this conversation before I wrote the book. Was, Na- was Nathaniel Hawthorne American or was he a Brit? I don't know much about him. Nathaniel Hawthorne was American. I'm going to, now you're okay. quizzing me. I'm going to get something terribly wrong. But you know, oh, yeah. Scarlet Letter. Yeah, yeah, so American. you studied the classics, the right? Exactly. <laughs> no, one of the great so, American authors. I have not finished your book, but I have been listening and reading, reading it. So I bought it twice. So that makes me a super fan. It absolutely um, does. I think your check is in the mail. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. But I did spend some time yesterday watching some interviews like um though the episode you did with michael knowles and your interview of ted cruz and i do feel like i have a bit of a sense uh uh, in context around this work but i don't really know much about you spencer um i just know that you wrote this book and the book is actually the reason that i wanted to have you on the podcast because i'm working on a book about americanism and i'm trying to figure out how to save the West. <laughs> you know, sometimes <laughs> yeah. I feel like, um, uh, I was thinking about this the other day. I feel like, uh, imagine if you were trapped in a room and you were told, you, you know, in this scenario that there is a way out of the room, right? It's just yeah. incredibly difficult to figure out. And in order to save the world, you have to figure out in the next five years how to get out of this room. And there definitely is a way, right? That's how I feel. Like, I want to save the world. I'm in this room. I don't know how to get out. It's got to be possible, right? And so so what are you been working on? How do we save the West? (laughs) I know. Like, when it all comes down to this one thing, like, there's this incredible moment in the second i think it's the second book of c.s lewis's space do you ever read any c.s lewis are you a, a I, I read mere christianity chronicles yeah. narnia screw tape letters yeah fantastic fantastic all right well go away i mean not to like everybody should read my book and only my book that's what i'm i, I ought to say but <laughs> once you're done with my book and once you've you know once everybody out there has raved about it on amazon give me five stars um c.s lewis's space trilogy is the best fiction he ever wrote i think really and, i've never even yeah. heard of it I know, I know. It gets short shrift because Narnia, very famous, yada yada. Um, I'm not knocking Narnia, but this is kind of more, a little bit more for grownups, at least it's more for grownups than kind of the, you know, first, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Yeah. And one of the cool things about it is if you read Lewis's nonfiction, like Abolition of Man and some of his big essays about like, which are very prophetic about techno-futurism and scientism and all this stuff. Um, if you then read this trilogy you'll find like the same ideas but in literary form so kind of like that quote you just said the lie that tells the truth like that's Mm. a lot of what fiction does sometimes it sort of embodies or it puts puts things in front of you in this different way so that you can kind of feel the truths as well as as well as knowing them and um there is a moment in the second one without giving away any spoilers where the hero has flown to venus and he's like out in the 
you know, he's doing space travel. It's kind of this weird mix of, of science fiction and fantasy. And he has to get in a fist fight, basically, that's going to determine the future of the planet. And he's like, this is insane that it comes down to like me, this little weirdo, this nevish. Like David and Goliath. Exactly, exactly. And he has this line where he says, and yet somewhere light years away, the fate of Europe hung on the actions of a, a, a boy no older than 20, you know, because it's the, during the Great War, or it's actually, I think mm. it takes place during the, during the Second World War. Um, and this is how life works. Like these giant questions, these enormous cosmic battles come down to like, you're in a room, you have five minutes, can you figure out how to like flip the switch that opens the door. Like these things are, even when we think of these big grand terms like the West or Americanism, which we need to do, we need to think in those ways. But ultimately, one of the big arguments in the book is all those ideas are going to cash out in terms of like really small human sized actions, the way you show up for your kids, the way you go to, the way you pray in church, like the, the interactions you have with your mm. neighbors, all that stuff. Um, so I suspect you'll actually really like the, last portion of the book which i know you haven't gotten to yet the crisis of the regime and that's about like what is america what is america supposed to be where does it fit into the history of classical philosophy and then what does that mean about just like tomorrow on the school board the vote that you take uh, you know i think understanding the, the one like big first step and kind of why i wrote the book is that people think about philosophy or the great books or the you know western culture or whatever and they think like this is somehow beyond me it's for academics right, or right. it's like to abstract um but actually or, or even that it's for douches because the totally middle douches. american people yeah. hate yeah. academics and i understand why but i, I minor in philosophy so i appreciate the texts oh nice course, yeah but. well man i mean look like academics have deserved so much of they the, are douches <laughs> like gore vidal was a big douche he was we a smart guy big douche. Like we all, all academics kind of act like douches sometimes but like especially right right now yeah, yeah. Um, mm, shallow and pedantic. The juxtaposition uh, yeah. of <laughs> like twirling the, the the Chardonnay glass or whatever, and like, uh, and I mean, my 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 feeling about this is like I'm I'm always going to be one of these guys. I mean, one of the things that is really important for Americans to grasp, I think, at the moment is like we have such a corrupt elite. Our elite are just like the picture of corruption and if you read classical accounts of elite corruption they're, they're kind of eerie in how uh, precisely they conform to you know this sort of self-interested uh double dealing and 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 just weirdly decadent um coterie cadre whatever you want to call it of, of cronies who have their like mm -hmm. uh, grasp on the lever of power all of that having been said it's very easy for conservatives or people who just recognize this to feel like, well, we should just do away with the elites altogether. And that's never going to happen. Like that doesn't exist because even in a, like a meritocratic virtuous society, some people rise to the top and become leaders and have particular skills that, um, so really it's like, uh, my feeling is I'm auditioning to be America's new elite. Like I am, yes, I'm one of these eggheads. Yes, I went to fancy schools, um, but I was driven there by a genuine feeling that this stuff is for you and that like whatever gifts anybody may have intellectually are like put there by God to make things known to people. And and one of the sure. things that that can do is it can put your life into a, a context that is 
grander and bigger and more ennobling than you ever thought. So you're all you're you're going to be doing a lot of the same things, but it's it matters that you wake up and understand that by putting food on the table for your family, you're not actually just like, you know, sloughing along as a, as a workout horse. You're actually like embodying some of the most important and core principles of classical political philosophy. Like the family is the core unit of, of all, uh, of all healthy regimes. And so this is sort of, um, the point of the book is, is not to tell you like, oh, you're doing everything wrong and you need to like go away and read Aristotle, but rather like Aristotle can help you understand why what you are already doing matters so very much and why you should think of yourself as like aiming at this kind of eternal cosmic truth of, of, of virtue. So if we were to take over the capital, should we approach from the East or the West? <laughs> I'm, just I'm just kidding. No, I appreciate that. And it's very Petersonian, right? Like oh, make sure Jordan Peterson, of course, yeah, make yeah. your bed, right? Like, don't try to save the world until you have your own shit together, right? And, and by having making yourself a better person, then you you take that first step to saving the world or the West. And that's sort of the point of my book. My book, I'm not sure exactly what it's going to be called yet. I've written 120,000 words, and I'm trying to like edit it so it doesn't suck. <laughs> and it's um, that's, it's that's, it's that's called. Hard, but you've got something on the paper. That's the most important thing. Yeah, uh, most yeah, people who yeah. are like, I'm a writer, it's like they never write. Anyway, this is <laughs> yeah. yeah, go on. But it's it's going to be called um, uh, the Rise of Populism: A Handbook for Radical Patriotism. I think mm, I think that's, that's what right. it's going to be called. Yeah. And um, uh. Basically, what I'm trying to do is make the case for populism, but but reframe populism as something that's not collectivism, as it has often traditionally been, but as individualism. So you can't truly be a populist unless you're an individualist, because the populace is made up of individuals. The individuals aren't made up of the population, right? Mm -hmm. And so the first step to populism is actually self-actualization. And then the other side of that is the only way to really reach self-actualization is to have as much freedom as possible because you have to have the freedom to do the things that it takes in order to become the best per version of yourself. So mm -hmm. it's sort of like a, um, a hierarchy of needs kind of psychology thing, self-help thing meets populist. Uh, and I'm trying to make it come together in some coherent way, but it, mm -hmm. I really resonate with this theme of the real way to save the West is to do your best to sort of reach this self-actualization or become the best individual that you can. Now I'm getting hot under the collar. I'm like, is my bed made downstairs? Like, <laughs> <laughs> like, oh no. I'm literally wearing sweatpants. So <laughs> hey, there we go. All right. At least I at least I dressed up. At least I'm like because yeah, yeah. uh, I'm an elite snob, obviously. I mean, this is why. No. Uh so, I was not trying to say that, by the way. <laughs> when I when I say I hate academics, I'm talking about when I go into a social issues class or sociology class and they tell me that I can't ask any questions because I'm white and I've had enough time to speak. Oh dang! That's like, those are the academics. That generally, you've had nothing yeah. to speak. It's like, yeah, what, buddy? I got it. news for you. Like nobody, <laughs> like no white man that grew up in the '90s or 2000s was like favored in class because of his whiteness. Like, if, what, what world are you living in? Anyway, no, yeah, um, yeah. No, I mean, this is so important. Um, are you familiar with that Abraham Lincoln quote? God must have loved the common people. He did make so many of them. That's I. I, I really, I've always loved that. Um, because it, it says to you, like the kind of, you know, if this thing called America means anything, it's means that those people get to be free, like not your right. kind of ideal of what the, the people might look like and not some, you know, upper crust chosen from among them. Like you have to genuinely in your heart be not only like cool with, but actually happy about the idea that like the 
the guy in the Norman Rockwell painting standing up that in that meme, you know, like and, and speaking. Yeah, yeah. That guy has a unique embodied soul that he's made in the image of God, like irreducibly. And, and you know, that, that his inner life is irreplaceable, has something to contribute. I mean, these are crucial American ideas. And I think they can neatly, I mean, your project and my project are similar in, in, in one way, which is like, you know, you're focused in the American sphere, but you're obviously thinking in this bigger philosophical sense sure. as well. Um, and one of the things that I argue in the book is, you know, the, uh, that America, the American regime as envisioned and founded really is kind of the, the height politically of what the West has produced, these traditions of Athens and Jerusalem that came together in Europe, built the civilization. I mean, this is, this is it, man. This is as far as we've gotten is the American regime, which is why it's so important to preserve it. Um, and that idea of individualism in community. I mean, the, the Greeks would have called, talked about a distinction between two different types of koinonia, which is like a word that means um, togetherness or, or uh, things in common. And Aristotle has this great passage where he talks about this. He says, you know, Plato in the Republic, he proposed that the elites should like all share wives and they should have all, all their property in common. And that's because they will that way they'll they'll all love each other. They, they won't have any envy. Nobody will get too much money or whatever. And Aristotle says this is this is crap, because, in fact, if you take a little bit of wine and you dissolve it in a big vat of water, you don't get a big vat of wine. You get a big vat of water with like a little tiny flavor. And and love is like this. Like all love also takes place in these kind of human to human uh, interactions. And so if you dissolve love, in, you know, in, in into the koinonia, into this sort of formless mass, then you've basically destroyed it. You've destroyed, you know, all the basis for, for human freedom, human interaction. Um, there's a different kind of koinonia, and that's what we would translate as like real community, which takes place in in relationship. This idea of justice as like the right relationship between individuals who form some, you know, you and I have this conversation. Um, this is another kind of Petersonian point. You know, you and I are here having this conversation. I have a perspective and a background. You have a perspective and a background. Never, you know, we talked for five minutes before, never met, but some, some third thing exists between us that is different from either of us. It's more than any of us could have produced alone, but doesn't dissolve us into this kind of like Marxist blob, which just seems to be kind of the, uh, the going aesthetic at the moment. You ever noticed that like all of these kind of calls for like liberation, they always end up with people in this kind of like non-binary burrito where they're like just, you know, dissolving into sort of some sort of like empty formlessness, formless mass. That's This is why it's because that's the opposite of individualism. Individualism is like the, the kind of populism that you're proposing is the like central idea of all justice, of all regimes. I mean, you could go on about it forever. Well, and, and this it ties right into the, the problem with communism is that everybody thought it was going to make everyone equally rich. But really mm -hmm. what ends up happening is it makes everyone equally poor. Well, right. Except for maybe one or two people at the top. Like in North Korea, there is one incredibly free man. <laughs> that's it, right? No one yeah, else has any freedom. His his freedom is directly proportional to everyone else's subjugation, right. so, or inversely, right? So yeah. uh, um, that's that's really fascinating, and I think it ties into like, a lot of motifs and themes throughout history, namely like Tolkien. Right? That was one mm -hmm. of my favorite things about Lord of the Rings is that it was the little people, literally yeah. the little people, 
that save the world. And I, I think that he was sort of reinforcing this idea. And I think it's interesting how in, I just watched the Hercules cartoon with my daughter. She's two. She loves it. And, nice. you know, there's this theme of the Titans. And, and it's almost as if the Greeks had this like idea that way in the past there were these evil, corrupt, godlike creatures mm-hmm. that were destroying the world. And then the real gods came along and subjugated the Titans and put them underground so that they would never come back again. But really, it's not a sustainable problem, like you said, just to wipe out the corrupt if the system is, is, isn't is corrected. And mm-hmm. I think one of the, the problems, one of the mistakes that we make as Americans is sort of out of hubris. We, we have an inclination to think that our leaders are less evil than leaders all over the world, whether it's in the Middle East, whether it's in Russia, whether it's in Ukraine or China or whatever, we think for some reason our leaders are less evil. And it's not that our leaders are less evil. It's just that we have a system in place that sort of checks that evil in a way that most other systems don't. Like I I firmly believe that there's an equal amount of greed. All the human nature is the same across different cultures and and, and just universally across the world. And Milton Friedman said this, you know, he's like, do you think there aren't greedy people in communist countries? He's like, you think that we're greedy because we're capitalists, but they're not greedy. So greed is everywhere. It's just a matter of which system is able to sort of check that greed so that it has the greatest good. Uh, Yeah, I mean, it's it's super ironic because our founders famously had this very low view of human nature, right? That if, sure. if men were angels, no governments would be necessary, but men are not angels, right? They're actually kind of a mess. And this is, comes right out of the kind of Judeo-Christian. Well, even the angels answer to God. <laughs> well, exactly, exactly. And, and angels can rebel, right? I mean, like this is like, uh, as you talk about the Titans, it's like in the Bible too, there are these giants. I mean, Nimrod is a, a mighty man against God or, or uh, in, in, in face of God, in sight of God. Um, yeah, this whole thing is like, um, the whole idea is that is not that our people are so virtuous and good, although I do think the American people have, you know, a lot going for them. Um, but they're, it, the whole point is not that we're, we're going to be so good. The point is that our ideas are so good, our system works so well, um, that it kind of safeguards against or it cabins in or redirects certain, certain vices. That's the idea. But you then you see, right, like, you know, um, you see people during covid like oh well our you know officials our authorities would never lie to us it's like what (laughs) where did you get that who told you that like their officials are going to be the first people to lie to you because they've been giving carte blanche i mean this is what machiavelli says the great kind of famous for his uh, for the prince obviously and for his sort of ruthless real politique and justifies the means yeah well right i mean like this kind of you get this adjective machiavellian but actually like he's got this other book the discourses on livy which is kind of in the spirit of my just whole life that he has the sense that you know the, the great works are kind of companions um and that being surrounded by books means you're not alone it means you're surrounded by friends um and so he looks into the great Roman historian Livy, who writes about the Roman Republic and, you know, uh, all of sort of to examine how it was that this regime came into being, but also crumbled. Um, and, And so one of the things he says is when the elites do what they did basically during COVID, where they betray the trust of the people, um, they commit a double crime because on the one hand, they've, you know, 
betrayed the trust of the people at a personal level, like the elites have failed, but they were also supposed to represent the system. They were supposed to represent like the best of what the, the regime had to offer. And so in failing, they've destroyed people's faith in that whole thing as well. You get kind of disillusioned. But from our from our perspective, from the perspective of conservatives who have this you know, criticism of the current um, situation. This is actually good news because, you know, G.K. Chesterton said before you get the good news, you have to get the bad news. Um, right. And I think the more people are like, oh, wait a second, they will just lie. Like the press, the, you know, quote unquote, you know, the science, like the these official bodies that are supposed to be kind of apolitical and removed, like they will just lie to you. Um, that is a core insight. And the founders got it crucially from the Bible. It was from this, you know, tradition of of Jerusalem that they got this idea that you know we are all fallen, right? There's no one righteous, no, not one. And so, put not your faith in princes. Um, and I think you know, famously, John Adams said, "This is uh, a, a constitution built for a moral and religious people." And that's one way in which that's true. Moral and religious people know that everybody kind of sucks um, and that we've all fallen short of God. And so then you can say, well, OK, so how am I going to keep a watch on the leaders and hold them to account? Because they're in fact, they're no better than me in any fundamental sense. Um, so that's kind of weirdly hopeful to me. I, I get weirdly hopeful whenever I see people being like, oh, like they just lie. Like with this new lab leak thing have you seen this thing where like they're basically gonna just like admit they're admitting it. that it came from yeah. the Wuhan lab yeah right yeah. right right so this is a good probably example. because we want to go to war with china <laughs> <laughs> i mean yeah yeah well right it's like it, it, yeah it would be the, the more china helps russia the more that our our government admits that it came out of a lab <laughs> ah interesting right i mean they are also making noise now about the fact that russia is right asking china for, for, for exactly weapons. um so yeah i mean if if what we take away from this is like yeah, oh, now they're telling the truth. That would be the wrong lesson. Because in fact, as we've seen, that they'll sort of say whatever. Um, this is the the reality crisis section of my book, by the way, is kind of like that that uh, people who don't believe in absolute truth will just sort of say whatever for, for power. That's kind of how right. that works. Um, and so the right lesson to take away from this is to continue. I mean, for those of us that are, you know, in media or whatever, it's just to continually hammering the fact and, and naming names of people who went out there and said, lab leak th theory is a conspiracy theory. It should be banned from YouTube. It should be taken. I mean, they did all of this stuff. There's a great book about it called viral um, about just how ferociously they, they persecuted people um, for, for even floating the lab leak idea. And so now that they're coming out with it, it's like the message for just, you know, people that love the country is like, yeah, so they lied. They just lied and lied and they will now pretend that they never did it and they will erase it uh, as much as they can, put it down the memory hole, but they genuinely lied because they suck. Yeah. And I agree with everything that you just said with the caveat that I've been exceedingly surprised ever since I've been involved in the political conversation over the last couple of years, just trying to grow this podcast. I've been exceedingly mm. surprised the extent to which the obviousness of the lies does not change the opinions of of the masses. So yeah. I still think that what's going to happen is half the population is going to vote Democrat and the other half is going to vote Republican, even though we saw this like massive state lying over the last two years where countless businesses went out of business, especially in like the restaurant industry. People became dependent on the government. People were told that there was a certain level of efficacy and certain approaches to this thing that may or may not have actually been the case. It, we were lied to so many times and economically ruined in so many ways over the last couple of years, yet so many people 
still sort of lean on or trust the science. The same number of people watch the, well, not the same number of people watch CNN, but quite a few, right? And yeah. so, I, d- how how does a people learn a lesson? Because it mm. seems, and e- even I had um uh, Alex Epstein on um the other day. I think it's actually Epstein. I can't remember. Uh, but I had him on my podcast, and he talked about how after it was obvious that communism was not a more productive economic system mm. than capitalism. Instead of not being communists anymore, the communists just sort of switched to saying, well, capitalism is worse for the environment, <laughs> right? Well, totally. Yes, this is a real thing, and they actually wrote about that. I mean, this is the yeah. left, like, cultural Marxism. I mean, you read Gramsci, you read uh, Michael Knowles' book, Speechless, about all this stuff. Like, this totally did happen. Um, and that's the, uh, the, the, the most disappointing thing, the kind of thing that you're talk- talking about, really, uh, mm-hmm. the tragic thing is like, that's kind of the default human setting is not like, oh, I was wrong. Let me change my mind. Yeah. But like, oh, all my predictions were false. Let me just like sort of readjust. Let me like rebrand, basically. Like, let me take this same idea and just like color it in a slightly different way. Um, and I was just recently kind of uh, watching a documentary about um, you know, new, the, the, the shift in New York's uh, fate, fortunes during the 90s and the, Manhattan, the growth of the Manhattan Institute. And I was like, the most amazing part about this is that like so many of these guys were sort of uh, like great society liberals who realized it wasn't working and changed their minds. Like they actually mm-hmm. were just like, this isn't working. And like, the, to me, that's the greatest mystery is like, how is it that they did that rather than just dug in their heels and double down or whatever? Um so, yeah, I mean, we're kind of we're talking about the infamous like pill conversation. Are you taking the white pill or the black right. pill or the um, and I am a big advocate of a pill that I think I made up, which is the quantum pill, because like quantum entities exist in a state of kind of un- unknowable multiplicity superposition until observed. Yeah. Um, and that is how I feel about all predictions about the future. I, I like insist that we do not know what will happen in the future. And that genuinely means we do not know. It's good news and bad news because good stuff might happen. Bad stuff might happen. Take the quantum pill. Like, and, and so the, the question then becomes like what not sort of will people wake up or however you want to put it. Will people take the red pill or the blue pill? Um, because really it's like we won't know until it happens. The, the, the question is like what is our job this is how i feel about all sort of pessimism optimism predictions it's like you might be a pessimist i might be an optimist vice versa whatever i'm not going to be able to argue you into a different prediction about the future and you're not gonna be able to argue me into a different prediction about the future what we can do is say what is our hope where do we have hope and what does that mean our our job is um so i would suggest like a few things asking people how their philosophy is working out for them. I have found is a very concrete way to kind of bring these conversations back down to earth. And like, you do have to have. So when somebody comes to you, like you know, ge- gender's fluid. How, yes. How's that working out that for you? Out? How honestly, <laughs> serious, sincerely, how's it working out? Uh, and it's so funny because it's like I, I actually, in my heart of hearts, I want to know. Like I'm, I'm genuinely curious. Like, what are you getting out of this? Somebody, you know, you obviously somebody's getting something out of that. Um, and I, I have some theories. I think, you know, people get a kind of cheap sense of meaning and belonging. They get a, the sort of illusion that now they finally matter in the world, right? If I'm part of the non-binary, trans, disabled, whatever community, if I'm if I'm this, then like I have some position in, in human life. So even though I think it's a really bad idea to seek meaning in the LGBTQIA plus star Borg, like I still 
think that I can work with that because I do believe that we need meaning. I think a lot of what people are doing, the way people are lashing out, the way they're acting out is a, a longing for, for meaning and specifically for religious meaning, for reference to a higher power. Um, this is the crisis of meaning section in the book and of religion in the section in the book is that, you know, people are offloading the religious impulse into all of these like political and materialist realms. And that is just not working out that well for them. It's making them miserable. It's making them sadder. It's making them uglier. It's, I mean, it's literally doing all of these terrible things. So I, I would suggest like, do I predict that this will work definitely or not work? Definitely. I don't because I'm a, I'm a average quantum pill taker and I, I have no predictions, but I have a lot of hope based on my own experience of interactions with people in just the question, like, how's it working out? That's a good mm -hmm. test of all philosophies. How is it working out for you? Because it's not working out well for people. And if they can be made to see that, um, that is one good way into people changing their minds. It kind of reminds me of um, calculus, right? Calculus is Isaac Newton's famous mathematics. Mm. And it's recently sort of with, I, I guess, and I'm not a mathematician, so I could be wrong about this, but my understanding is that in the context of Einstein's theory of relativity, we sort of discovered that calculus is not perfect. Yeah. However, it is good enough to get us to the moon, right? It is a very <laughs> useful, practical mm. thing. So if you, if you sort of translate that concept to philosophy, you're not going to find a perfect economic system. You're not going to find a perfect philosophy, mm. but some are... Some are better than getting us to whatever place we want to be than others, right? So I'm not saying that capitalism is perfect, for example, or even that freedom is perfect, but it seems to be much better for things like ending poverty than communism or collectivism or, or much more just than sort of autocracy or, or fascism, right? Yep. And so yep. it, and, and that's, it, it ties into Nietzsche, right? Nietzsche said God is dead. And then, of course, throughout the 20th century, we saw so many people turn to the state instead of turn in, instead of to God. And that resulted in um, our, our Mussolini's and our Hitler's sort of coming to be, I think in, in the 20th mm. century is a lot of this absence of God. So we have to psychologically replace it with the state. We saw this mm. with communism as well. And uh, it turned out that that was really a less, a less efficient approach than um, just, I, I don't know, putting your faith in, in higher ideals and higher power and not, and not relying on, on, on government. So I, I do think that's really fascinating that, um, uh, this where we yeah. lean, you know, yeah, this thing about like, it works well enough. Um, the whole debate over like trusting capital T S the science or whatever has right. totally obscured this point. And it's actually really important. Like if you read early philosophy of science, um, and I'm talking really early, like medieval or, or, or ancient, um, you will find this strain of thought. It's basically called saving the appearances that when we when we build scientific models, when we build mathematical models. Um, what we're doing is we are getting the best possible approximation uh, in mathematical language of what's going to kind of of how this stuff is of how the patterns are playing out, because if you know how the patterns are playing out, then you can make good predictions about what's going to happen in the future. Um, and these guys were super aware, like precisely aware in a way that we were not until Einstein, I think, like super aware that these were just mo working models, that they would get us closer and closer to the truth and would often deliver good predictions, but that they weren't like the sort of final reality of the world. Um, materialism totally obscures this because if there's all, all there is in the world is just matter moving around. 
um, then there's no reason why math and equations shouldn't be an exhaustive description of all things. This is what I call what many people call scientism, um, that science is not just a good way of discovering information. It's the complete description of reality. And this is simply simply doesn't work. I mean, this is like at kind of the great discovery of of Einstein in some ways was that it wouldn't work, that like Newtonian mechanics wasn't a complete and exhaustive description of all things, because there is no complete and exhaustive mathematical description of all things. And we see this as a direct analog in politics with the capital P progressive movement, born out of that same idea of kind of this uh, sort of materialist, but really just like equationist. It's the scientist idea of like all things, every kind of human activity boils down to calculations, chemicals, atoms. Um, and if you can calculate it, then you can get the right answer always. They will always spit out the right answer. And so there's really no need for like all this like voting and, you know, the constitution is kind of outdated. I mean, you read the the early progressives, they're saying all this stuff. They're saying like we, history has moved beyond this sort of like antiquarian document. And really what we need is bureaucracies. And this is the birth of the administrative state. We need like systems experts in place who are going to turn the numbers and spit out the right answer. And the classical understanding, which is really important, is no, actually, there that's not the kind of thing you, material you're working with. You're not working with material that's going to spit out an, an answer to a question. You're dealing with human souls. Um, and human souls have a kind of infinite capacity to surprise. Um, and that means that like politics has to happen. That means the little guy gets to be free. That means we do representative government. Um, this stuff is becoming more and more apparent in the sciences, except that we have a really loud like microphone class screaming to us that no, the equations still work. They will deliver mm -hmm. the right answer for mm -hmm. COVID. They tell you you need to lock down. Science says you have to stay in your room, whatever. It's like that stuff fails and fails and fails, but because it has taken on the character of a faith rather than uh, right, it's become dogmatic. Argument. Exactly, exactly. But yeah, yeah, this, this is really important. Like, no model will exhaust the world. That's true, but I also think that one of the things that bothers me about the trust the science um, language is yeah. it's a misunderstanding of science itself. Absolutely. Because when they say trust the science, what they're really saying is trust what the experts say. And yep. the experts are designated by bureaucrats or whatever. They're not saying trust the process of science. Because remember, science, the scientific method is a process. It's hypothesis, test, you know, and then the, the more the hypothesis is reaffirmed, the more you can sort of believe it to be true without adopting it as, as scripture, right? Mm -hmm. But that's not what they were saying. They were not saying trust science. They were saying trust the scientists, right, or the totally. experts, which is like a completely different thing. Because if we were actually serious about trusting the science, then we would be looking at the genetic structure of COVID and saying, huh, it's interesting that strands of this DNA were actually patented by you know certain <laughs> drug companies. Or it's, <laughs> it's interesting that we haven't identified specifically which animal that it supposedly came from. But we do know that whatever animal it was, was absolutely adjacent to a bio lab that was researching covid viruses or coronaviruses rather and yeah, so yeah. like th they're not really saying trust because if you trust the science no, you really realize not. that masks don't work that the <laughs> vaccine efficacy is maybe perhaps questionable i don't know <laughs> good thing we're not whoa 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 this but, is dangerous but, I, I i have to shut this podcast down this is dangerous conspiracy theory i'm talking to an insur a literal insurrectionist with fascist tendencies no i mean I, look, like, <laughs> i'm sorry i that's okay wouldn't <laughs> like, be the first time i like to play aoc on tv it's it's a fun game um yeah. no but like okay yes um there is a version you can imagine a version of trust the science 
which is kind of like saying trust the invisible hand. Like it's like saying there's a process at work here. The process eventually yeah. delivers the right answers. And so sometimes we're going to get it wrong. But we're going to develop hypotheses. And we're going to test it out. Um, that is, you are absolutely right. That is absolutely not what trust the science, capital T, capital S, means. That trust very the manipulative. Yeah. No, and totally. And it wears like all good kind of like lefty Borg slogans. Um, it wears a good idea like a skin suit. It kind of hollows out everything that's good about science and then pretends that that's what they're saying. And this is like, you get this with, with feminism too. It's like feminism is just the idea that men and women should have equal rights in the workplace. Right, but that's not what it means anymore. No, no. And so they'll say that and then they'll then they'll get people to be like, okay, well, then I'm a feminist. And they'll be like, oh, good. So you must believe that there are 37 genders. And like, you know, we need to, because then they've got you in this like linguistic game, basically. Um, and yeah, this is what trust the science is also. It's like trust, there's, they, they act like they're saying, trust the process of knowledge formation that's kind of open to all that we can. but in fact what they're saying is bow down before my false god like believe in this clerisy this priesthood of people who access the pronouncements of some absolute truth and then they hammer it down upon you and whatever they say goes so is this your first book uh no it's not um i wrote a book called music in ancient greece um, which is about music in ancient Greece. And as you may imagine, it's, it, it was kind of more, I mean, I, I won't say it was more academic because this book does contain sort of big ideas, but this book is really aimed as an invitation to people into the great tradition. Music in ancient Greece is specifically for people who are interested in that. Um, so that How was do we about, know what it sounded like? Aha! Well, now you're talking about the subject of my PhD thesis, so you've really stepped in it because this is going to be, it's like you're going to have to tell me to shut it. up. Oh boy. Um, so not many people know that we actually have sheet music from the ancient world. Um, it's not staff. It's not on staff, no. Um uh what they did is they wrote letters. They had letters assigned to notes. But speaking very, very broadly, they they took letters of the Greek alphabet and assigned them to notes of the scale, and then they put them over the syllables of the words that uh were being sung. And so we have, for instance, a papyrus that uh, at least claims to show original music, or seems rather, I should say, to show original music from uh, Euripides' or play Orestes. It's a fifth century BC tragedy with like. Whoa! Tone. I didn't know that, bro. Nobody knows this. Like, is I mean, it cool? Like my... It sounds exactly like Lady Gaga. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's actually the Greek translation of bad romance. <laughs> um, no, <laughs> poker face. Right, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> Correct. How did how did you know the title of my thesis? Intuition, poker intuition, face, bro. Ancient poker face. Yeah, man. Uh, no, ancient no. Poker face. <laughs> poker face of antiquity. Uh, 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 an ode. Um, yeah. So, like, basically, um, the the reason it doesn't sound like Lady Gaga, besides the fact that like the Greeks had better taste. Sorry, um, is that their scales are slightly different than ours. They're formed. In the same way, this, the kind of like bones of the Greek scale are formed in the same way. So I don't know. Do you play an instrument or anything? Or like, yeah, yeah. Like, I, I was classically trained piano. piano oh, piano, so phenomenal. Like okay, so we can talk shop here. I mean, like, 
uh, you know, the scale is built on two fourths, the tetra two tetrachords, do re mi fa sol la ti do. And if you go here comes the bride, and then you go uh, like happy birthday, and then you go here right. comes the bride, and then you go an octave, right? If you do a, a fourth and a whole step, and then sing it, baby. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's how our that's the sort of skeleton of our scale, and then you fill in the the fourths with either a major or a minor, or sometimes if you're in like Dorian or whatever. Um, but the Greeks had kind of like an almost infinite number of notes that they could fill in the tetrachords with, and there were elaborate musical theories. So they do like, like half tones, like something between yes. an F and a G, but not an F sharp, something between an F and an F sharp. They would, they would do some of those kind of weird. Yeah. Yeah. And almost like Middle Eastern, to... right? Aren't the, some of the Middle Eastern scales atonal or whatever? Absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. That there's like, I mean, there are all sorts of traditions that use these tones, and like we are super locked into those of us that think about music in the Western world are often kind of locked into the piano keyboard as if that is like a, you know, ironclad. That's right. That's like where all that's where the existing notes live, and there are no others. But in fact, there's like an infinite number of notes in between every note on the piano keyboard, as, as you know, because you can slide continuously up. And so, yeah, lots of tradition the indian ragas and all sorts of chinese music whatever use uh different tones than the ones we use and the greeks did too this all makes it a very very tricky business to actually reconstruct but people are out there doing this uh my supervisor armand dangor does a lot of this stuff um and like it's we're actually recording it like on a lyre or something to so you yeah, can bro. hear what it sounded um, like yeah is that like, like time signatures and shit like that like do you know how fast it went or anything like that uh Yes. Well, no. I mean, <laughs> tempo, time signatures yeah. are different, so but yeah. Here's an, an interesting feature of the Greek language, um, which is not true of English necessarily, is that um, Greek syllables, in addition to having vowels in them, have like a duration and a pitch, relative duration and, and pitch. And so our poetry is mostly structured around emphasis, right? The, the stress of a syllable. Um, shall I compare thee to a summer's day? You're kind of arranging the line uh, around the stress of the word. Um, Greek poetry is arranged around uh, duration of syllables. Uh, this is the first line of Homer's Iliad. And it's like in a kind of, you can hear already it's in a kind of, bump it's like i got a little jam going to it's called dactylic pentameter um and so all greek poetry has something like this it has a kind of a rhythm baked in and similarly okay. it has a contour a, a tonal contour baked in because there are accents that tell you to go up and down um and so we can like again these are all tools that we can use it's kind of like sometimes you see like people have painted over uh greek statues because many of them were painted and so we're kind of trying to get a sense based on some of the traces that are left behind and all of this technology um right it's probably not going to get you exactly how it looked like but it's like a very useful exercise for thinking your way back into what it might have felt like to be around this stuff so that's kind of I, the comparison i would use if so we don't know anything exactly but there's a lot of really interesting stuff out there and that's what my thesis was about so when you sat down to write this book, How to Save the West, hmm. when did you start? How did you come up with the idea? And what was the process to actually yeah. get the book done? Yeah. So in some ways, this book has been in my heart since like I was like 12. Uh, and that's because I, as I mentioned earlier, I grew up in a house surrounded by books. And thing that that revealed to me very clearly is that to be surrounded by books, especially old books, is to be surrounded by friends. 
Um, this stuff is just so rich, but it's also so companionable. Um, works like Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics or, you know, the Bible even, you know, Thomas Aquinas. These guys, they sound so forbidding. They're used kind of a lot of times to like keep people out of whatever power structure or what have you. But they're actually incredibly rich um, and and meaningful discussions about how to be excellent at being human. And it's like, everybody needs to think about that. Everybody cares about that. And so that's been the driving force of my life. And, you know, even as I went into like academia and did that part of my life, there was always for me an urgency about it for just real life, for real people. Um, and so I started this podcast, Young Heretics, uh, call, which was basically designed to deliver some of this, to, to offer people an inroad, to let them know um, that you're, you're actually not alone. You know, the, the news cycle is so crazy and everybody, all the stuff that we've been talking about, it's, it's like you feel like you wake up every day and something else is going wrong and it's going wrong in some way that seems totally unprecedented. It's like nobody has ever faced this problem before. Um, digital technology especially does this, like disorients us, alienates us from ourselves and one another. Um, and so I, as I did this podcast, I mean, you know that when you do a podcast, you start to make contact with listeners, you connect with people. And I just heard so much despair. Like I just heard a lot of uh, anxiety, fear, uh, despair. And a lot of it was based on the sense that everything was falling apart. And it gradually, it occurred to me that the reason why people were responding to these great texts that I was offering them was because in these texts, you discover that even if the news is new, even if the technology is new, the questions that we're up against are very fundamental and ancient. Mm -hmm. They're especially fundamental in these moments of change and crisis. And so that means that the old books become more urgent and not less because those those problems have been around forever. What's a human being? What's our relationship to God and the universe? What's our place in the world? Um, and and these people that have been my friends since I was a kid, you know, these guys were wrestling with exactly those questions, and they were incredibly wise. And they offered us sane, good, helpful answers uh, for facing some of that stuff. And, you know, now we're being basically told that all that is outdated and probably racist and also bad and we should throw it away, which is just like such a disservice to people. It cheats them out of their inheritance. Athens and Jerusalem and these, this great wisdom literature, this is like a, a, a treasure house. And these ideas don't just come out of the sky. Like they, we don't we're not just born so nice and so commonsensical that we kind of know like, oh, all men are created equal. Yeah, everyone believes that. People act now as if everyone believes that. And so they can just stand in judgment of the past. But the opposite is true. It's like the past is what got us here. <laughs> that, the, the great works, the great texts um, give us our best answers to the questions that we are facing. And so I wrote the book because I wanted people to know that. And I wanted people to have a little bit of ownership over this stuff that really does belong to them. That's that's what the whole point of it is. So then, like, how do you put it together? Um, the way I worked on it, I, I'm an outliner. So I outlined, um, you know, a kind of a, just thinking about, like, what are these fundamental questions that were that were up against. And one of the things that keep coming back up, even as the news cycle goes and changes and we forget about things, it's like, I thought, here are some, some fundamental questions that we're facing. And these are the five crises in the book. The first one is, is there 
such a thing as objective truth, or is it just my truth and your truth? That's an ancient question. It's the oldest, oldest philosophy. That right, but to say there is no objective truth is to make an objective truth claim. Uh, right. I mean, it totally breaks down, totally incoherent, in, in, internally incoherent. Only like, Sith think in absolutes. Uh, like, that is an absolute, uh, Obi-Wan. That is an absolute. <laughs> I remember walking out of that movie, dude, with my dad, and we were both like, that didn't that was like the dumbest line <laughs> for this reason because uh, right like yes if you say absolutely that nobody does not and in fact in uh athens in 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 greek philosophy there is record of a guy uh a follower of heraclitus who was one of these relativists he sort of said all everything is in flux uh it's all just kind of what you perceive sure. or what i perceive is like, always it's like fire always changing it always the same or like a river right always yes 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 you never step in the same river twice Yes, right. yes, pre-Socratics. Uh, your philosophy major, minor, so this minor. minor. So, yeah, 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 right. Okay, I know enough about philosophy to know I know nothing about it. <laughs> That's that is philosophy. I think That's you did it. That's it. Um, I did it. <laughs> yeah, is a philosophy minor rather than a major? Is that where you uh, do philosophy, but you're sad about it? Hey, <laughs> I basically took like one class on ancient philosophy, one class on medieval philosophy, one class on modern philosophy, and I think cool. maybe one other. I think it was a logic class that, that contributed. So I think I had like 12 hours of philosophy cool. total. So uh, yeah, just a hand, like one or one class every semester or something. It was small, but it was, you know, I read, so I read a lot of the books. I mean, you, you know about the pre-Socratics, which is, I, I, yeah, I read the pre-Socratic re reader, you know, the little white book that's got all the pre-Socratics. Yeah, 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 I read yeah. that. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. A lot of people think like there was nothing before. Basically Socrates just like stepped into the world, but actually he was just come out of nowhere, bro. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> in the sky spring from the head of zeus um no like this is um a lot of people think like socrates just had all the good right. ideas but actually he was dealing with a very specific problem which is very much like our problem which is a culture where it was super fashionable to sort of mouth relativism as like a piety you know or just like oh yeah there's nothing either good or bad but thinking makes it so that's the hamlet version of it later on and, and so um one of the things that socrates shows us and this is what i say in the book is like there's no such thing as halfway relativism. So the reason I embarked on this whole Heraclitus thing is Heraclitus had a student who concluded that the only thing he should do is just sit around and move his finger because everything else would be false. Anything you say is false. Anything you do is sort of inherently false. And so you should just sit and like stare at your finger. Basically, Was that a joke um, or, or did he really believe that? Because <laughs> it's almost a joke, uh, I, right? I, I, I mean, it, I, yeah, I, I don't know. It's, it's so, so He wanted uh, to be just like I, John Fetterman. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he's a he's a, he's a Heraclitus, you know, follower. That's that's Fetterman, right? Uh, Fetterman just really likes that's Heraclitus. The interpretation they'll give us next. Yeah, that'll be next. It's like you know, this is why Stephen Hawking not because he's a yeah, it's right, exactly. It's actually not because he's a spousal abuse victim who's being paraded by a conniving like Democrat elite. To it's actually because he's a disciple of Heraclitus and he's realized that which is racist. So I can't believe they ever voted uh, for him. <laughs> I mean, anti-Heracletianism is just rampant in our society, and we, it's structural, and we need to get woke about it, and it's no laughing. And Heracletian <laughs> violence. <laughs> this country was founded, founded on systemic anti-Heracletianism. Relativist lives matter relatively. Oh, no. <laughs> yes, relatives, relatives' lives matter to some people, so, and that's the only truth about them that there is. Uh, <laughs> Oh boy! There'll be seventeen uh, people that are going to love well. this episode. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to my career, bro. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
That's uh, yeah. There's a lot of in jokes here going on for the for the crowd. But but like this is the thing is this stuff is so you know it feels so kind of nerdy and it's funny, but also it is weirdly urgent. It's yeah. like this is exactly the problem we're dealing with. Is is like a culture that believes and teaches that you can be a relativist in your philosophy class and then go out and fight for justice, right? Social justice. That's what we fight for. It's like, what's justice? Justice is an absolute. Like this is only, I thought only a Sith deals in absolutes, you know? Right. And like, this is, yeah. Um, so that's the first one. And then the, uh, the next one, which is similarly kind of like everywhere is a body crisis. It's just like, what's the point of the human body? Because so many people are so, desperately uh and painfully confused about this or even not confused so much as like furious about it that this this transgender craze um in which you know children are mutilated um again it's so horrifying that it's easy to just look at it in sort of despair and be like well, it's end times but actually it's the consequence of a very bad and very old idea which is that the, the body and soul are not united that they're not one this is like that goes back to neoplatonism and and uh some of the early followers of of plato who kind of wanted to like transcend the body get out of the human body and this is like the part of the book that just says like no man your body is the language of your soul like it is the vessel that god chose to walk the earth in and this stuff is to me this is the part that's just most I don't know. I'm, I care maybe most of all about this because I see how much pain people are in over this. And I really think that like an ancient, an ancient insight here uh, that the body and the soul, that the, the form and matter are fused together, that you're a thing beautifully and wonderfully made. Um, it's, it's kind of our only hope. I mean, this tech is only going to get more crazy. And the offers are only going to get more and more insane. Like, you know, upload your consciousness to the cloud, be in the metaverse, whatever, restructure your whole body or leave it all behind. It's like you're going to need a foothold against that stuff in days to come. And the soul, the human soul is the only foothold. It's like that's kind of the whole game. You either think that your form is something real about you or you just believe that you're kind of a disembodied brain and you can tear up your flesh however you want so yeah that's a good example of like you know the stuff gets so nerdy but it also gets so real yeah real quick well and the trouble that i have particularly in the trans conversation is if the, if the body and the soul are so so distinguished from one another so separated from one another then mm-hmm. why is it so important to change the body right like that seems yes. to be the flaw of the argument so why can't you just be uh, a woman with a cock then <laughs> i mean <laughs> and frankly right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and and there is a version of the argument that basically does, says, yeah, exactly. So I'm going to put on lipstick, but I'm not going to change anything else about myself. Right. And then I'm going to go into the girl's locker room. You know, I mean, and this stuff gets real sinister real quick. Um, sure. And, and this is like, uh, so there's a version of it that goes that way. Um, but there's also a version of it that basically says, well, my, my body is like the sort of canvas for expressing my inner self. Mm, um, I see. so like, I can't uh, adequately express and, myself and until I change my body. Exactly. Until I lop off my genitals until I, you know, whatever. Um, and this stuff actually never ends, right? There's no, there's no end point to it. It's, it, it doesn't stop at, at gender. It doesn't stop at sex. Um, it, it goes on into transhumanism. It goes on into like, you know, I 
think that be a you know a, a puppy or a demon or what i mean all these pronouns now exist on tiktok you can find them pretty easily um and again it's it's a very uh old idea it's like this flesh is if any at best the flesh is a toy um at best it's like a sort of meat puppet and at worst it's just an imposition and we got to get rid of it altogether this stuff you talk about something that where the question how's that working out for you really matters right it's like um how is it actually working out for for people to pursue this idea um the answer is well, that was one of the things very... that fascinated me about matt walsh's documentary what is a woman i didn't realize mm. that the average trans suicide was like seven and a half years after a transition surgery mm. yeah not you yeah. know and the, that the narrative is you got to do transition to prevent your kid from killing themselves because they'll be so miserable in their body which they don't identify with but then you right. look at the data right. and most trans suicides which are tragic occur seven and a half years or seven years after they've actually transitioned physically absolutely and so many people grow out of this like just blunt to sure. be blunt about it i grew it's, out of it yeah. did you really did you uh <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a trans uh, I, i'm a i'm a man who identifies as a woman who identifies as a man so i'm like double trans uh, i bounced back so i actually yeah, I fit into the category but I'm totally uh -huh. cool with my body as it was born. That's magnificent. That's like, you know, we should all, uh, it's like coming back around to the other side of the world. You know? Full circle, it's, baby. Like, yeah, galaxy brain. I love it. Uh, man. Uh, yeah, congratulations. You're the world's first trans cisgendered individual, I think. is. What yeah. <laughs> breaking, breaking glass ceilings, bro. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I can feel, I can feel the liberation. It's pouring all around me. I, I love it. Oh, man. So what's next for you? Yeah, well, I am uh, working on a new show at The Daily Wire. Um, which, Congratulations, dude. I didn't know that. Thanks, man. Yeah, um, it's actually we're, we're like building the set right now. I just got this morning. I woke up to text pictures of the of the set and um, that is so it, cool. I'm super stoked about it. I'm, I'm going to be an Atlas Shrugged. Do you get to be John Galt? I heard they were doing <laughs> Atlas Shrugged. They bought the rights to the series. Uh, I am, I have no involvement with that, uh, that whole procedure. So I can't speak to it one way or another. Um, sure. but if I were John Galt, I wouldn't tell you, um, no, I, uh, I, I, <laughs> oh, it looks like you just froze for a second, Spencer. Yeah. Oh, you're back. I see that, but I'm, you're I think back. I'm back. Sorry. Yeah. Um, I was just gonna say the show is going to be about the stuff we've been talking about the great works of West. Um, and it's going to be in a real sort of deep dive documentary format. So we're going to talk about like Paul's sermon on the Areopagus moment that Athens meets Jerusalem, but just like every, you know, get into sort of like who those Greek philosophers were and, you know, who Paul was and why this meeting mattered so much and what happened. So it, um, it, I, I'm, I'm really stoked about it. I think if people, you know, if people liked Young Heretics, they'll love it. But I also think it's kind of a cool opportunity to bring this stuff to a wider audience as well. That's really, really cool, man. I'm really happy for you. And I will Thanks. excitedly follow that show when it when it comes out. Are Thanks. you gonna are you gonna dive in at all to the um uh sort of first three centuries of Christianity, the difference between the Trinitarians and the Aryans or anything like that? Because I'm really interested in Elaine Pagel's work on the Gnostic Gospels and things like that. Cool. Uh, cool. Um yeah. it, 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 are you gonna dive into that at all? Because I think a lot of it is probably stemmed from Plato's metaphysics, some of those ideas mm -hmm. that were uh, debated so hotly for those first three centuries. Yeah, you know, do you know uh, Jonathan Peugeot at all? Um, I don't. He's, okay, See, I was just a minor. 
<laughs> it's in the minor key. Philosophy in the minor key. Um, no, this is actually a contemporary of ours, so it's not like a, okay. it's not a, a book you're supposed to have read. It's it's a guy who uh, he's pals with with Jordan Peterson and okay. Um, just has a lot of really interesting stuff about early Christianity, but also, you know, sort of patristic literature. Um, there's, it's a really good idea. I, it's not one of the ones that we currently have in the works. We have about four of these like slated. Um, sure. But I definitely think something about, yeah, the, um, just the early church, which is such a, I mean, the, <laughs> I always think of it as like a kind of, a kind of trauma. And I use that term in, the sort of more general sense of just like a really disjointed and jarring experience for Christianity to go from being a persecuted faith to being the kind of operating system of the Roman empire. Like right, state sponsored. Right. Right. Which is puts it at odds suddenly and forevermore with some of its own basic teachings, like, or at very least it kind of creates this tension at the heart of everything. Cause when the church is in the catacombs, it's like, well, they're doing the thing that Jesus said, right. They're, they're, like suffering persecution they're dying for the faith um now they are like in the palaces and they're building the big monuments and all that stuff and it's like what what happens to christianity at that point um obviously very good for the world uh the question is was it good for for christianity so yeah that would be that would be a really cool one i don't have any plans to do it but i like yeah well and it the problem is it pisses off a lot of people because when you really dive in there Mm. is a substantial debate about the nature of the trinity and when you start talking about the trinity it can really piss off a lot of christians and non-christians alike Interesting. Um, and so i could see how like maybe the daily wire audience would either really embrace it and be interested in it or be sort of antagonistic toward it because um i'm somebody who's actually read the bible and studied uh-huh. some of the early christianity stuff and i went through a long period of time where i i felt that the the, the trinity was actually against the teachings of jesus and it was something that I was unable to talk about with people who were sort of devout in whatever denomination that they were a part of, because they're all virtually Trinitarian today. You know, that's that's really fascinating. So I am a dyed-in-the-wool Trinitarian. I, I do mm-hmm. believe that, that sure. God is three in one. Um, but I think actually one thing I'm really keen to insist with people, especially Christians, um, because Christians are so culturally embattled right now. They're really on the sure. – you know, they're, they're really attacked in, in, in big ways and big places. Um but I, I just feel very strongly that there, there is no fear for us in an investigation of the truth. And shouldn't like, be, right? Know, there should not be. There should not be because it, it suggests a lack of conviction, actually. Like the reason why you would never offend me by discussing like the Nicene Council or whatever else, the homoousios and homoousios stuff, is like <laughs> – I believe in the truth of the Trinity. And so I have a confidence that the sure. thing that we will discover is, is that truth, you know? And, and I, I also feel as if like a lot of Christians act as if they don't really believe what they're saying. And so they don't want to talk. They don't want to talk about like some of these like more difficult things to to discuss. And of course, like a lot of these places where this stuff is discussed are, are hostile to doctrinal mm-hmm. Christians. And so there uh, there's reason to be wary but I also think that that what that does is it seeds the ground to people who are hostile to Christianity. If Christians say that's all secular nonsense and I'm not going to engage because I don't want to be tainted by it, then you develop an entire 
expert class that is interested in these questions and studies them minutely from a hostile perspective. You've basically just left that territory open in whatever you want to call it, the culture war, the academic. So I, I feel very strongly that it's like you should never be afraid. Sure. Never. The ever. truth and God are harmonious. Uh, so you should be willing you, to debate. They are. Yes. Right. Truth is God's. Exactly. So you should be able to talk about this stuff, um, even if what you end up saying is sometimes I think it's it's very legitimate. Pe more people should learn to do this. It, it's very legitimate to say, you know, this is a challenging new piece of information for me. I still believe in the doctrine because that's my faith and I'm 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 going to believe that. But I'm going to continue examining and, and thinking through this like you don't have to at the end of every conversation, tie neatly up with a bow, the conclusion that everything is fine, that like right. you were right all along. Do you know what I mean? Like you can have faith in, in something that you will say, you know, you say I'm, to my dying day, I'm going to believe that God is three in one. At the same time, I'm going to examine portions of questions that, that make it difficult for me to believe that or that raise sure. issues that I haven't thought about before. Um, this is crucial for the church, I think. It really matters that we learn to do this. Yeah, absolutely. So where can people find you, follow you, engage with you, and get your books. Well, thank you for asking. I do appreciate it. Uh, the book is everywhere that you buy books. Uh, Amazon is where I usually send people. Um, and Audible, there is a, an audio version that I read myself. So if that's your thing, um, you can get it on Audible. Uh, I see a lot of people kind of enjoying that format these days. Um, and so, yeah, there, that's there. Uh, give it five stars. It really helps. Uh, and then I'm on Twitter. I'm at Spencer Clavin. I think that's where we connected and uh, yeah. that's where I post all my fire tweets. So, Well, it's been an honor and a pleasure to awesome. have you on uh, One American Podcast, man. And I hope that we stay in touch and you come back on and join us yeah. anytime that you want. you got an open invitation. Oh, thanks, bro. I love that. That uh, It's been so much fun talking to you. And yeah, let's definitely do it again. All right, man. Take care.